to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm Bea Eggard. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Welcome to the third series of the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. Over the last few weeks, Rona and I have been exploring challenges and opportunities to prevention, diagnosis and treatment of tuberculosis. And we thought it was really, really important to have an episode that looks at COVID-19 as an infectious lung condition to better understand what lessons have been learned from TB and how they were applied in the pandemic. And also what we have learned from the pandemic that could influence TB. As we all start to think about better prepared for pandemics in the future, there are lessons from existing pandemics like TB, which can ensure that we connect with those who are most vulnerable. So today we will explore how lessons from TB have informed the COVID response and how COVID-19 learning is shaping the future of TB and lung health. As always, I'm here with Dr. Rona Mijumbi. Hi, Rona. How are you today? Hi, Kim. I'm very well and really excited to be back here in conversation with our experts. I have not only enjoyed the last episodes, I have learned a lot. So good day to all our listeners, wherever you're listening in from. It's always a pleasure to have you. My name is Rona Mijumbi, a Senior Lecturer of Public Policy at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and your co-host today. Although a public policy analyst now, uh, holding a doctorate in health policy, I qualified as a medical doctor and later as an epidemiologist and biostatistician. And through my clinical work, research and public policy, mostly in uh, low and middle income countries, I have come to interact with the topic of tuberculosis in several ways and at different levels, but the learning definitely does not stop. And that is why it is such a pleasure to spend the next hour or so with our guests. Very good to be here, Kim. Thanks, Rona. And thanks for your background once again. And I'm Kim Ozano. And our guests today are Mohammed Yassin and Charles Wu. We are very excited to learn from them. So let's find out a little bit more. Mohammed, would you like to start? Tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do. Thanks, uh, Kim. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, my name is Mohammed Yassin. I'm uh, senior uh, tuberculosis advisor at the Global Fund, uh, where uh, I advise uh, uh, countries and country teams on uh, strategic investment of uh, Global Fund resource for priority interventions and uh, key populations uh, to maximize impact. I have experience uh, over uh, 25 years in TB uh, in, in my country and in Ethiopia, and later I joined the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and uh, um, Research uh, um, and then Academia. I've been in the Global Fund for the last uh, over 11 years. Uh, happy to join you. This a very important uh, opportunity. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mohammed. Um, that's a great background, and I think we will learn a lot from your experience today in the Global Fund and, and your past work as well. Welcome, Charles. Hello, tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do. Hi, Kim, Rona, and Mohammed. Just call me Doc Charles. I, I consider myself a frontliner and survivor of the COVID wars since I was one of the top generals in my province. But I, for a long time, have been a TB researcher for the last 30 years. And uh, uh, it, it was really something uh, of a lesson for us to combine the two. I've done a lot of work. I was once WHO temporary consultant for public-private mixed dots. 
and uh, I actually left academe to help in uh, improving private uh, access or the private physicians to access the national TB program. Lately, I've been doing community-based uh, researches on tuberculosis, which obviously has been greatly impacted but by, by what happened in pandemic. And, and I'm very eager to share the experiences and the lessons learned we've had from those events. Thank you very much. Um, that sounds wonderful. Uh, and the province, you said, where the province you work, tell us where that is. This is uh, the largest province in the Philippines, Cavite, which is just uh, south of the capital, national capital region. It's about almost 3.5 to 4 million people in population. And uh, uh, that's another story I need to say that our governor approached our university to convert the TB center to a COVID center because we were the only one with a biosafety level that uh, would quickly convert it. And so we were the first public-private mix uh, COVID uh, diagnostic lab that was converted from the old TB molecular lab. Thank you. That's really quite interesting and leads on to our first question as well. One of the things we like to do in the, the, the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast is to understand the differences in context. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the Philippines and how you need to consider the social, political, economic situation of the people you work with when you're responding to TB or COVID. What are some of the aspects that you need to consider? Well, the Philippines is a middle-income country. We're around 110 million uh, people, but we're at the top five high-burden countries in the world. And uh, the TB services in the country is a mix of public and private uh, services. A lot of people actually go to the private sector, maybe a third. But actually, in uh, survey after survey, the people do not seek care, uh, formal care for TB. And this has been uh, consistently seen in uh, at least three surveys. So they don't do anything. They self-medicate or they go to the local, what we call boutique or pharmacy and ask, what can I, what can I do for my cough or my fever or even uh, my, uh, if I cough out blood? So th this has uh, 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 been used by us to actually try to reach out to other public sectors or uh, to other non-public sectors so that we can actually increase the access to care. Uh, this is one of the things that I think is also in some of the high burden countries surrounding us, whether it's Indonesia, Pakistan, even India. These are the same situations, if I may, if I may guess. Thank you very much. So what are some of those um, factors that create a situation where people don't seek care for TB? What are, what are some of the barriers that influence that? I think one of the, the things is because uh, private care here is expensive. So uh, they come to the hospitals or to our clinics very late, uh, for one thing. They're too busy earning a living or trying to survive that uh, day to day, uh, uh, finding something to eat. And it, it actually explains why uh, predominantly a lot of our uh, patients, of course, traditionally are men, but women get the delayed uh, access to care because they're also taking care of their kids, they're cooking in the house, I think typical in many other homes. So the health becomes uh, less priority and mo most likely it's the so-called head of the family that seeks care first uh, to the detriment of the, 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 the women in, in, in this country. Uh, but the women are the more empowering force in our country. Uh, they are the more reliable force, in my, my say. In my project where we actually use community-trained workers to make um, multidrug-resistant TB patients take, care, take their medicines, it's mostly women. Women who are successfully making men comply 
with taking their medications. Uh, and I think this is something consistently seen. Thank you very much, um, Rona. It's really interesting that, isn't it? Because in our first episode, we explored gender norms and social norms that create these barriers or facilitators to accessing care. And we haven't really explored the, the Philippines in so much detail. So it's really nice that we've added to that. Thank you very much. And Mohammed, over to you. I understand you kind of work across countries, so the, the context is a little bit different. But I picked up in your introduction that you uh, use the term key populations. Could you tell us a bit more what you mean by key populations? Uh, thanks uh, very much. Um, it's a global fund. Uh, it, is, it is an organization which is a partnership of uh, public, private and uh, communities and peoples are, people are uh, at the center of global fund strategy and uh, investment uh, and we support countries, um, uh, not only the, the public side, but, but the uh, civil society and communities uh, and private sectors as well. Um, while the Global Fund investment support HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, and the last two years uh, COVID response as well, all our investment uh, really prioritize uh, key and vulnerable population. Uh, these uh, for TB, we are really talking about people who have um, uh, issues with accessing the TB service uh, due to different reasons and uh, people of uh, um, um, barriers to accessing service, including you know people living in very remote areas and urban poor, uh, people living in prisons and migrants and people. Uh, working in the mining and children and women. And all these are considered high risk groups and uh, vulnerable population, including people living with HIV and other comorbidities, which have a uh, higher risk of developing TB, but also um, a limited uh, access to TB service. And these are a priority of our investment, uh, including uh, countries like in the Philippines where the Global Fund support is focusing on drug-resistant TB, on active case finding to reach those uh, people living in uh, uh, very rural areas, uh, and uh, also engaging public and private sectors uh, in uh, providing TB service. So that's what we consider as a, a priority for, for TB investment uh, within the Global Fund portfolios. Yes, Charles, did you have something to add? I'd like to chime in. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I was uh, struck by the Mohammed's uh, uh, statement about the urban poor. Early in the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, I, we were trying to orient our mayors in Cavite on what needed to be done with the lessons learned from the outbreak in China at that time. And uh, we had some consultants from uh, Canada. And one of the uh, key was home isolation. Not many people actually remember that contact tracing was something de jour in TB. Before they even talked about contact tracing in COVID, it was part and parcel of our world in, in tuberculosis. But anyway, I narrate this because uh, uh, there was a slide that said, how can you do home isolation? And this was also the comment of our mayors. When in the Philippines, a typical hovel or home had three families sharing the same room or two rooms. And, uh, and the, the joke was that in order to do home isolation, they were hanging by the window or this, the, the, the ceiling to, to get themselves or to prevent their exposure to the, to the COVID uh, uh, patient. So uh, 
it, it's uh, something that uh, strikes me that we had lots of lessons to teach to the COVID community and we were able to actually apply some of them and actually re-engineer people in, uh, in, in um, redeploying them, especially during the hard lockdowns that I think all of us, most of, us, most of the countries experience. Well, thank you, Charles. That's um, really useful to hear. And um, what's coming out from, from both of you as well is this public-private involvement in both TV and, and COVID and, and how those lessons were important. And I can imagine there's differences between working with public services and private services. Uh, do, do either one of you want to talk about the differences between public and private services from the patient perspective? Mohammed, we'll go with you first and then come back to Charles. Yeah, uh, good. Um, as part of the global fund, we also support, uh, and TB, we call it a public-private mix, uh, uh, both public and private. And we understand uh, that we may not be able to end TB without uh, engaging the private providers. But, but the, the, the people who may go to private providers and then public providers may be different due to different reasons. And this also could uh, vary by regions. And we understand in most countries in Asia, for example, uh, people with symptoms of TB, they usually go first to the private providers. Uh, and um, yes, the service is accessible there and people may still afford to pay uh, and they may prefer to go there uh, to get that uh, uh, quick uh, support uh, for, for their problems. Um, people who are usually going to private uh, public facilities, uh, the services are available in most cases are free of uh, um, uh, you know fees, and uh, uh, people who cannot afford to pay to pro private providers may uh, prefer going to public uh, uh, providers. So the quality of service and uh, and the in, uh, the the costs incurred to people are different in public and private. But as part of the momentum in finding the missing people with TB, uh, uh, engaging private uh, providers is really very important, and they should come as partners to work together with the public so that this will contribute overall uh, accelerating the end of TB. And that's what we see. And how can we make um, the TB service in private pro um, uh, providers uh, more affordable to, to everyone, including through different uh, um, insurance mechanisms and uh, contracting mechanisms and then incentivizing engagement of private providers in uh, uh, TB service. I think that's what we have been doing as part of Global Fund and as part of the programs in the countries receiving the funding. Uh, in some of the countries, uh, up to 15% of the uh, TV portfolio investment goes to private sector engagement. And uh, I think that's already contributing to increased uh, notification and uh, improved quality. Thank you. Very comprehensive answer. Um, Charles, I think some of your comments will run into uh, Rona's question. So I'm going to hand over to Rona now, but thank you very much for, for that kind of setting of the context. Thank you, Kim. And uh, thank you, Mohammed and Charles. This is already, you know, uh, engaging and interesting. I'll, I'll come to you, Charles, first. You mentioned quite a number of um, issues around lessons that you were already harnessing, you know, from the TB 
responses before. I'm all for harnessing lessons and not reinventing the wheel where we can. So I'm really curious and I would like to know, how have the lessons from the TB research and science community fed into the COVID response? Okay, so again, uh, uh, it's a story about how we actually partnered with the local government to establish a public-private cooperation in uh, the COVID efforts, not just in setting up diagnostics, but is actually advising them on where the local and health leaders should be, what, where, where should we be investing, what should we be informing our, our people. I guess the first, uh, looking back, uh, and also from the TB lessons learned is, you kind of needed to get the trust of the public partner. That was a basic thing that you had to build on. You had to gain their respect and we and vice versa. Okay, so we had to build that up. We had to show them that that we knew what we were doing, especially from the expertise we had in TB. We knew what we were doing in contact tracing, in diagnosis, and even in the treatment, particularly in the communities and in setting up facilities from the community to the hospital to the clinics. And when we gained the trust, then many, many other things followed. So it was easier to lobby or make decisions in terms of what to do with regards to the lockdowns, what would we do to our health workers. In fact, challenging was the TB community health workers were not classified as frontliners, would you believe Mohamed and, and Kim and Rona? So imagine the people we had to uh, deploy to actually look at after their neighbors. They couldn't get even out of their house because they were not classified as frontliners. So we had to explain that to the governor and the mayors, And they quickly understood the, the role that these people played. And, and we had uh, ongoing researches also uh, uh, based in the community. So how do we deliver the drugs? How do we collect the specimens that these patients had to submit, including um, uh, um, regimens that were so complex at that time? So, so that was, I think, one of the lessons for public-private mix that I think we distilled from years of working in TB. You have to learn, and the trust doesn't have to actually only come from one side. A lot of people in the public, in the whole world, the public health, think that the private sector is for profits, are only uh, are not to be trusted, but there's also a lot of distrust within the public sector, and that that needed to also we had to convert that. That you need to trust that there's a core group of private sector physicians or private sector, uh, I guess, industry that are sincere in helping our poorest because TB is a a, a disease of the poor, so. Uh, we had to do that, and there's a lot of things that happened there. Corporate social responsibility, even the universities and the academia. I was an example. They lent me to uh, the TB advocacy efforts, so I left the academia for almost four years, devoting fully to the idea of promoting public-private mixed docs with colleagues like um, um, uh, uh, the, the now uh, uh, people like Kunut Lonroth and and uh, people who had worked with the PPM from the very start. So Mukunduplikar, for example, uh, we were there at the very beginning. And now it's blossomed into a full-blown policy affecting the whole PB global programs, uh, in, even in Global Fund. Thanks, Charles. Very important lessons there, you know. Trust, respect, 
you know, in the face of the fear and uncertainty, I think these were really important lessons. Mohammed, I know that, you know, in your former life, you were at the front line as well. Are there lessons you think, you know, have fed into the COVID response? Yes, uh, yes, the frontliner um, and then the researcher as well. Um, yes, I, I think a lot uh, of the experience from TB are relevant for COVID. And, um, and uh, I think that we all know that uh, both TB and COVID are airborne disease and they primarily affect uh, the lungs. And, uh, and the stigma is, is, is a big issue. Uh, and actually we call it double stigma for both TB and uh, uh, COVID. Um, and um, overall, the TB infection prevention and control, including using masks and uh, uh, all the diagnostic and uh, treatment process, including you know, treating someone with a complicated TB, with hunger of air and using all oxygen. You see, this has, these are not new for TB. And, uh, and this really contributes to overall uh, responding to COVID as part of the overall airborne uh, disease and uh, response. Contact tracing has been part of the TB uh, program for many years. And I think these are opportunities. And uh, I understand COVID response uh, learned from TB as well. Of course, there are a lot of things which uh, we need to learn from COVID for TB, including all the, the surveillance system where uh, real data available from all over the countries everywhere. And um, all the response to COVID, uh, of course, I agree with Charles uh, that TB is, is a disease of poverty, but COVID is a disease of everyone. And you see the attention has been there for COVID and resources were available and diagnostics and vaccines were developed within a very short period of time. While TB has been uh, um, struggling for hundreds of years uh, with, with all the tools uh, and, uh, and old vaccine over 100 years old and uh, all the poor diagnostics. That's why uh, the, the two should really learn from each other and I see going forward as part of, you know, responding or preparing ourselves to future pandemics, uh, developing a health system in general is very important. And, and awareness and uh, stigma reduction to communities would be uh, critical. And, and uh, working with communities, the private sector and provide, uh, public sectors would uh, be critical going forward to, to address any uh, pandemics in the future as well. So there are a lot of opportunities to learn from from the two programs, the two uh, diseases. Fantastic, fantastic, Mohammed. Um, you know, lots of similarities, a few differences here and there. Charles, uh, you know, did you want to add something there? Yeah, every day in, in my country here, the Philippines, there's a four o'clock habit, 4 p.m. The, the ministry or the Department of Health releases the latest daily count of COVID. How many people got it? How many died? How many is the positivity rate, etc. And uh, I think um, uh, it was also published. This is something we can really use in TB, that we can have real-time uh, data. Uh, and even the, the mortality rate now, the current uh, deaths are around 54,000. We usually have 27,000 deaths per year from TB. So there's almost already a match 
of annual debts from TB and from COVID in the country. And if I may actually share, for a long time, uh, we have been advocating for TB and getting the attention of media to not, no matter what attention, we were like the graveyard shift as far as the news is concerned. And now, and this is, I think, was raised by Mohammed. Everyone is afraid of dying from COVID. So everybody invested so much time, efforts, and so much concern about what's happening with regards to COVID, even the daily reports. We can use this attention or refocus to health as an important part of committing resources to actually accelerate the process in the new tools for TB. And we need to tell our people and communities as we reach out that we need research and we use communities to promote research. Thanks very much, Charles, for that insightful outlook and highlighting the importance of engaging communities in the COVID response. And we would like to hear more about this in part two of this episode. So listeners, do tune in again where we will hear more from Charles Mohammed about how the community was essential to engage the poor and vulnerable during COVID-19 and how TB survivors filled gaps as community health workers during COVID-19. Thank you very much and please tune in for part two.